Hi everybody, this is Arthi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. In acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate their continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we are speaking to Catherine and her chapter is I Don't Quite Fit the Work Mold. Um, welcome, Catherine. Tell us a bit about Thank you. Yourself. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Catherine Thorburn. I am a dual qualified speech pathologist and teacher that also has a master's in special education. And I um, am based up north of Newcastle um, in the Hunter Valley. And I um, am also mum to two kids with a rare disease. That's a form of childhood dementia. So I am the owner of language and learning. And yeah, the the journey that we were going to, to chat through is that I've I'm the type of person that has pivoted between professions and between different roles. So I I started life as a speech pathologist and then retrained into primary and did a master's of special ed. But I then taught mainstream and came back to speech and worked in have have um had a quite a um a winding path of of journey and now I work for myself. Um, from home and um, have two kids that are homeschool with my hubby. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. You are welcome, Catherine. It's such it's such a pleasure and an honour to have you here. Um, tell us, with your work, you started with speech pathology. Um, what drew you to speech pathology and what does a speech pathologist do? Um, so... I originally, I was part of the first year at Newcastle University, so we used to refer to ourselves as the guinea pig year, and um, back in the, the mid-90s, it was 94, and I had a real interest in um, adult rehab and adult um, swallowing, and um, so a speech pathologist will work across the lifespan, um, working with the early years with um, um, kids, early childhood, and um also adults with um, stroke and cancer care and um, end of life care and um, yeah, just supporting communication and um, clear clear speech, whether it's fluent speech, stuttering, um, also pushing into swallowing and feeding and um, yeah, and through my journey also um, we've seen the profession shift more into understanding the link between um, language and learning difficulties and literacy and um, yeah, so I've, I, as an early career speech, he ended up working in a um, sole position in the Blue Mountains from birth to death and so I um yeah got to do everything and did a spent a lot of time working in um adult acute and adult rehab and did a touched into cancer care and um 
a lot of um, degenerative conditions and some palliative care and um, yeah and I suppose also I had a number of families that I worked with that were adults that had had tumours and stroke and pushed into adult literacy um, supporting the return of skills to allow people to go back to work um, so yeah I, I really liked the diversity and I really liked the fact that um, yeah you got to meet people where they were and support their needs and um, yeah realise what mattered to um, supporting people to live their best life. That's that's incredible and communication is what makes us human but it's also mm. what can um, sort of develop across the lifespan um, mm. but is also a protective factor depending on what's happened um, and what needs to what needs yeah. need to be met. Um, so what then from speech pathology drew you into the education world? Well, after working with a lot of um, adults and working into the end of life space and palliative care space and stroke rehab and I just felt like a break and I decided that um, in those days in the um, early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, um, community speech pathology, we really, we didn't have NDIS and we didn't have um, a lot of private practitioner work. And so community health services were 10 occasions of service. So I considered going in as a pediatric speechy. And then I thought, actually, I really want to go into the classroom. I really want to actually um, yeah, just retrain. And I did a master's of um, teaching. So I did a grad dip ed in primary and then the second year as a master's in special ed and out at UWS Nepean and um, still working part time as a speechy. So as I retrained, I was, um, I did one day as a senior speechy. I worked as a lifeguard and a learned swim teacher on the for the Department of Education and um, at one of the pools in the mountains and um, yeah studied full-time and then the year I did my special ed I had um, taught at um, in the lower mountains and upper mountains and I picked up a, a day a week um, teaching and was doing all of my special ed um, internships in Western Sydney in Mount Druitt so um the trigger and um yeah so it was really 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 exciting because I had great diversity and you got to see how things interlinked but I um didn't want to be in a support unit I wanted to be mainstream and um because I wanted to see for myself exactly what it was that needed to happen in the classroom to um, like I could make all of these recommendations but actually going and testing it out and understanding what worked and why so um, yeah I ended up um, 20 years ago to 2003 I came back to the um, to Newcastle to the Hunter and um, yeah taught mainstream for a couple of years and then changed schools into a um, again taught um, again and then ended up K-12 learning support coordinator and still held my speech equals and then stepped back into a speechy role with paediatric brain injury team. Um, 
then set up a pilot role with paediatric brain injury team supporting um, kids with mild moderate head injury back into mainstream school. So doing that transition support as a pilot and um, also picked up, worked one day a week in Catholic schools office, job sharing the disability consultant role for the, the Hunter Valley across K to 12. And then, um, yeah, set up my private practice and stepped into that because my eldest was starting school and um, yeah, then ended up, um, she was diagnosed. So I have now have a nearly 15 year old and a 10 year old and they both have an ultra rare disease that is the only two cases in the country. Um, and it's now classified as one of the forms of childhood dementia. So it's a progressive, um, pro progressive condition that um, is caused by a protein error. That's a genetic condition that, um, yeah, it's like less than one in a billion, a million um, incidents and I have the only two siblings. Um, and um, so, yeah, my eldest was starting school and so working for myself allowed me greater flexibility. But then um, 2019, she, uh, my youngest was due to start school as well and we moved um, up to Madawi where we are now so that I could start a smaller school and I ended up back in a K to 12 well, it was preschool to 12 learning support um, oversight role, looking after literacy, numeracy, um, learning support and um, GATS and still held my private practice on the side. And then since COVID now, um, to keep my kids out of hospital, they're homeschooling. So I've pivoted again and I do a, a day of telehealth on a Saturday and then I've set up to do some professional support online for speeches and schools um, just to help navigate because in that um, COVID season, um, as um, the blessings of COVID was that I got invited to be part of the um, syllabus writing team for the New South Wales um, syllabus for K to two and the three to six English syllabus. So I was the only teacher that sat on both teams of the teacher writing team. So um, yeah, it's, I'm, as I said, I don't quite fit. I keep pivoting. I keep swapping between one and the other and um, yeah, but it comes out the other end and it, it keeps working. And it's amazing to see how, um, how much crossover there is between what I do um, and things that I've learned from the classroom that strengthens what I do as a speechy and realised what I know from my speechy training that is not in teacher training and um, also the same with special ed training, just a lot of the, um, so for example, a lot of your direct instruction and a lot of your um, instructional methodologies and um, best practice science of reading is a lot. I had very, very good lecturers back when I did my special ed training and over the years have, have kind of been the island um, in my school where I've been reading a whole lot of information and the library says to me, oh, you can write in that book, Catherine, no one else is going to want to read it. And then over now everyone wants it because the we've seen this big shift. So um, yeah, that's been, that's just a very, very big picture overview, but I, I keep hitting roadblocks and it keeps directing me to pivot down another phase. And what I find now is that I keep, um, connecting with families and schools that have had similar similar but different paths and um 
you're able to overlay that um like as I, I think I said to when we were chatting beforehand we have so many kids in our schools now that um were premature or survived early cancer treatment early years treatment or have had head injury or um even some of the kids with epilepsy like medicine has progressed so far that um, many of our kids that we might go, oh, they have a disability, actually have a complex medical history that contributes. And so they're not a student that's necessarily finds their home in a support unit or a segregated, um, they don't have a, a, a cognitive disability, but they have support needs to help them navigate through no fault of their own. It's just one of those things that's happened in their life. And so I now get to... Um, um, support those kids um, from afar and equip them and, and help them to um, be fabulous. That's absolutely incredible. Um, thinking about your work history and how rich it is, um, how in rich and enriched it is, it's absolutely fantastic. Catherine, I'd love to delve a little bit into you talked um, about how things linked together and I would specifically yeah. love for you and it's the title of your practice language and learning um, let's talk a little bit about how they are linked together and perhaps also then that landing in um, in your role as a speech pathologist in a school mm. yeah well what's what's fascinating is that um what I kept what I kept seeing in my classroom um I kept having upper primary classrooms of um often the kids that you would get to school and everyone would go yeah good luck with that class Catherine and it's like oh they're beautiful um and our kids would just keep um improving and and thriving and you would look and you would go ah oh, that's that's learning and then that's actually disability and then that's not that's not literacy that's language and um for example i remember one year um i had a a year four class and i used to first thing after every break i would read dr zeus and i would read um all of the more complex dr zeus um that had lots and lots of nonsense words and the rule in my classroom was that you were hot, sweaty, you'd been out playing handball. Um, after eight, recess break and lunchtime break, you were to come in and sit down, put your head on the desk. I do not care. I'm not talking to anyone. I will read to you for 10 minutes and then I will engage and we will get about our day because everyone just needed we were in that um age group of stage two where everyone plays handball for sheep stations and soccer it's just crazy and you'd come in hot and sweaty and what I noticed over the year was that my kids started to all of my kids started to um make sense of the nonsense and find it and what I was doing is that I was, um, through the choice of what I was reading to them, we were building language skills and inference and um, all of those things that um, as a speechy I would be doing, but I had the chance to embed it into my classroom routines. Um, and it was fascinating because I had a number of kids that were not great um, um, to do with attention and I had next, but at the end of the year, I had next door's class in as well. And 
I went, looked around and went, oh my goodness, there was all of my class sitting there thinking the whole thing that was hilarious and next door's class that hadn't had the exposure went, oh, this is strange, we don't know what, and it showed me just how much you can drip feed and change. And so um, a lot of the kids I work with, I see assessment results as a starting point, not a finite um, end position. And so um, I was talking to a, a family over the weekend and their student um, is neurodiverse and been working for a long time and um, yeah just chipping just chipping away just building skills linking those language skills into learning and having structures and um, this cherub's just started year seven interstate and mentioned to mum oh yeah I've just ended up in the I think I've just ended up in the top classes for for school and we all just went what but just goes to show that a person and starting point doesn't have to be their end point and there is the, uh, 13 years of schooling and so we don't stress about what we can't do but we just bring people on that journey to be the best they can be and so I'm the type of person that will target language skills in maths lessons and use um, use science um, vocabulary and um, link look at patterns and color code and um and often instead of, I think as speech pathologists, sometimes we get um, caught on focusing on the end point, on the product goal. We are talking about that um, this week with my membership. And um, we get so focused on the end goal that we often use when we're doing artic articulation therapy or speech sound therapy. And when we're working into uh, with kids um, who are, upper primary and we're working into language and learning and literacy skills and writing skills um, it's more a process and um, that idea of process goals and so um, I'm really really fortunate that one of the students that I'd worked with since he was in year five or four I think I picked up again for 12 months in year 12 last year and so I keep being able to connect in kids that I let go come back to me at key points of transition to support them through the journey and each time they come back they come back with different goals and they'll be like right I've done I've done my draft I've done this I've done I just need you to help me tweak my vocabulary or um, mm -hmm. but that real ability to empower others rather than create this dependence and um yeah, so that's how it all kind of um, interlinks. And I suppose it's also made me a very inclusive um, educator and speechy because I've been able to, sometimes when we're walking through the early years with kids with learning difficulties, we think that they're never going to get there. And the joy of being able to be at the other end and, and seeing where we've got to and walk that whole 13-year journey um, mm -hmm can just be really encouraging to have a mindset that says, okay, well, if we can't do it perfectly, what can we do? Because guess what? No one's perfect. So um, let's just tailor what we can do to help you be the best you can be. And what a wonderful sort of attitude, but also persona to have, because that's what life is, right? Is it's, not, it's, yeah. it's not perfection. Um, good enough is, it's fine, more than fine. But that's right then valuing what they are coming to us with. It's not that mm. it's zero blank slate that they're coming to us. No. They have so many assets, so much to contribute, but it's 
yeah. actually trying to dig deep um, That's right. see what that is. But, uh, Catherine, I'd love to delve into, now you briefly touched upon a um, couple of language skills and you talked about inference, but you talked about understanding words and vocabulary and all of that. Let's let's talk a little bit about the language skills. What First of all, what is language in its broad terms, but also what are the skills that are important for students or even adults to use when they're learning? Well, what I find fascinating is that our kids coming into, um, this has been my big learning journey of the, the recent, I've always been one that when I'm supporting spoken language skills, I will often use text and support kids to look back to the text because there are different types of questions. You could have literal questions where the answer's in the text, or you could have um, questions where the answer is in multiple parts of a text and you need to pull it together, or you need, or you have a um, inference question where you need to take what's in the text and what you know. Um, and sometimes those texts can be an episode of Bluey or they can be a video or um, Mr. Bean. And um, what I love being able to do is being able to give the, give students some structure around that space and um, yeah, help them use the tools that they have. And so with our kids and their, their language skills, they need to be able to read fluently. They need to be able to understand, um, but they also need to be able to make connections. And so instead of, um, instead of students just going, well, reading is just when I say the words, actually going, okay, well, what does it say? And what does that mean? And how can we pull that, that out? And does that make sense? And what else could you do? And so it's that real integration of being able to understand and answer questions and um, understand pronouns and pronoun reference for text cohesion and um, being able to um, look at similar um, similarities and differences. So in your comprehension, in your text, you might have text that talks about toys and that might you know, mum walked into the room and they will have to pick up the Barbies and the um, the Hot Wheels cars and the Lego that was every, and she yelled out to the kids, would you come and pick up your toys? And for our kids being able to understand that those examples of toys are categories of toys. And so the skills that we work on as a speechy with categorization actually build to being able to, I brainstorm a whole lot of activities you might do if you visit Canberra and then group them into categories of, um, you know, outdoor activities and museum-based activities or, um, or um, nearby sports or things. And so that then forms your paragraph structure when you're writing. And so, um, and then it, um, at high school, when you're having to analyze and critique, being able to recognize those patterns, which are essentially categories, um, allows you to identify themes and um, to be able to talk about um, literature analysis and themes and patterns and all of those types of things. And so for me, having been in the classroom and taught in the classroom across K to 12, um, 
it allows me to go, okay, where this is what this looks like in kindergarten. But the reason I'm doing this is because this is how it builds in stage three. And then this is what it looks like in, in year five, in year seven. And then this is what, why I'm doing it. So for example, um, things like teaching kids to understand and unpack literature, I will come back and start with picture books or short video or even episodes of Bluey. Anyone that's worked with me, I taught you seven and eight to write um, essays using Bluey. And in a previous, um, previously, I used to use episodes of Mr. Bean because you had to be able to understand and pull it all together and be succinct in your summaries. But you can build it to comparing and contrasting features. You can talk about what's the same and different. You can talk about, okay, the jacarandas are in bloom. What month is it? And they'll go, how do you know that? And it's like, well, the Jacaranda Festival in Grafton is in um, November, so it must be late spring. Um, you know, you can um, also talk about things like, well, when Bluey went to America, well, is it going to be a success? Which is, in essence, a question that says, are the, are the themes of Bluey universal? And what does a universal theme mean for the success of a show ar around the world? And so by taking seven-minute clips or Pixar short films or any of those things, you're actually giving the kids um, the skills to be able to, over time, you know, it might start... As we're talking about process, it might start that you write down five things that happen and then you maybe write down 10 things that happen and then you build it into um, phrases that you answering WH questions and then you take the answers from your WH questions and your sentence combining skills into paragraphs. And then and so that then is building the skills um, for students to summarise out their ideas and interpret read sources and um, identify what they need to know, which then means in a year 11 and 12 final exam, they can go into an unseen question mm -hmm. and mind map out their own thoughts and answers to generate their, their response. And so um, knowledge of synonyms and antonyms, you've got word analogies, you've got, um, yeah, all of those skills and then syntax and sentence structure um, because often we find our kids are really, really good with narrative text, but they get into high school and they're engaging with um, um, expository or factual text and they struggle to write in that passive voice and third person and being able to critique and analyse. And so that's a whole different set of language skills. And so a lot of people would, in the past would say to me, I remember when I retrained and I came back and everyone said, oh, so you've left the profession, Catherine. And I said, no, 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 I'm just in another space. It's all still, but I've been really fortunate that I've been in schools where principals have said to me, anytime I had a student across K to 12 with language, with reading difficulties, I would assess their language. And so I could look and go, oh, okay, well, that's language and that's reading decoding. And this is what it looks like across um, K to 12. And this is what we need to do, do about it. And so I'm, I'm very much a hybrid practitioner that embeds things in practice. But I've been very fortunate to be able to dabble and actually test out what works and why and then follow the kids to the journey through school. 
Isn't that so beautiful, Catherine? Um, I'm thinking about language. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, when, when we say language, we're talking about sounds, we're talking, so sounds of the language um, that you're speaking or listening yep. to, learning in, you are talking about the specific words that you're using in the interactions. And that doesn't matter what sort of an interaction it is, whether you're listening to it, you're speaking to it, um, you're reading something in that language, or, that's you're right. reading, or you're thinking about it. And that's, that's frequently yeah. that part where you're talking about the process and how it changes. It could be sort of one thing that you've you're working on or two things but the the sophistication level of it changes over time but it changes in that sort of speaking listening reading writing and thinking um exactly there is a very close alignment between um all components of my training because um things that we need to be able to so if i'm teaching um, working in the classroom or working in a clinic on a student with comprehension difficulties, I could be working in maths problem solving, maths story problems. Yeah. And so I don't see language as being English um, mm-hmm. or English literature. I see language as being the key to learning and even from my days working in um, adult with adult stroke rehab, we knew that just because um, just because a student could uh, someone couldn't speak didn't mean they couldn't understand. And I remember working with um, an elderly gentleman once. Okay, so Catherine, you were talking about a gentleman you were working with. Yes. So- very, very early in my career, I had a, an elderly gentleman um, present to emergency and um, it turned out that what they thought was a stroke was brain tumours. And I was had the opportunity to work with the family for the next 12 to um, 18 months. And what was fascinating was that um, every time he couldn't, in those days I was doing a lot of power path um, language stroke um, mm-hmm. assessment and um what we found was that over time he would get confused about a word and for some reason when you spelt it or if you saw it written down, he understood it and it took away all of the confusion. And so I've always come into the world of school and paediatrics with that um, mindset from working with assuming competence and going, okay, what profile of strengths and weaknesses do we have? Um, mm-hmm. If a student has stru- struggles with um oral language comprehension are they better with text and I've got um, students who um, their skills will be age appropriate where they have text whereas if it's spoken they're two years below their chronological age and it's the Mm -hmm. role of executive skills and language memory and language processing and so um, I think that at times in school we assume that skills will continue to develop and whereas with adults we go okay we've had a a student uh, this person was a doctor and they've had a an injury how are we going to what skills have we got to work with to maximize their function but now with the progress of modern medicine you could have a student who has had 
a stroke um, when they were born or in the early years. We have kids that have had um, chemotherapy and radiation treatment or a head injury. There's very good research that um, mild, moderate head injury before school can um, have long-lasting flow-on effects through school because the injury happened prior to learning. Um, even in the world of sport and all of the new concussion management guidelines, um, the impact of concussions, I've had a number of students that have had post-concussion syndrome. And um, so for those kids, sometimes we need to go, okay, what skills have we got and how are we going to support them to be the best they can be? And it may be that at this skills that they're weak in improve, but we take away all of the stress and help them realise it's like my youngest um, side effect of their my kid's diagnosis is my youngest, my both kids have hand tremors. And so my youngest started kindergarten. Um, everyone said, oh, you have to give him the chance to learn handwriting, but we had technology happening in the background. And by the end of first term, he would be under the table anytime one mentioned handwriting. But on the iPad, he knew how to screen share. He could, um, um, yeah, used to be everyone's tech, tech um, expert. Um, and he'd outsource all of his coloring into the girls and the boys would do all of his cutting for him. And um, in kinder, they just referred to his diagnosis as being the wobbly hand. And so if you had a teacher in saying you have to do your... Um, your best work um they would all go oh, but but what about him he's got his wobble he's got the wobbly hand he needs to use his ipad or we'll help him and that was just everyone has different strengths and weaknesses and so um yeah it was just one of those things that even though he started using technology every time they did um spelling lessons on the whiteboards he would darn well sit there and do it on the whiteboard because he wanted to to practice those skills but it took away the pressure that said, oh, I can't do anything to, oh, I've just got the wobbly hand and I just need a little bit of help with, with handwriting, but I can do everything on my iPad, so that's okay. And so now he can write and he can draw and um, and it's just simply through not making that the only way that we can show our skills and our competence. And um, for many of our kids, we can't necessarily assume that all of our kids starting school have had a typically developing early childhood because a lot of our kids will have acquired injuries or, um, or disability that might take a very specific skill. So just like the adult, we know in adults that a, um, a mild stroke could take out um, um, specific skills of reading or learning. Same, I've seen a student who had a heart condition and had learning difficulties, quite, but realised that she'd been resuscitated as a six-month-old um, multiple times during heart surgery. And so that very specific damage was now presenting as what looked like a learning difficulty, but it was a disability. And so that's where life gets a bit tricky at school. Um, we now have um, kids that can have acquired medical complex medical histories that present in the classroom as having a learning difficulty, but we also have schools at various journeys towards implementing the evidence. And if you can get a systematic synthetic phonics, um, 
a nice response to intervention model where it allows you to um, in, to tighten up the focus of your binoculars to be able to spot those kids and get a, an appropriate plan. And it just makes everyone's life easier because you're not trying to reinvent the wheel for every individual child or keep a student practicing skills that neurologically there's a reason that they can't do it, but they can actually do it if you do it this way. And that's what happens in my house. And so um, I have conversations um, with my youngest who says to me, I don't, I'm not, I'm not handwriting it, mum, or I'm not typing it. I'll just speak it. Thank you very much. And then I'll tweak it and I'll edit it. And I know how to keyword search and I know how to find what I find. And um, our kids have the benefit of technology. And just because you put in place assistive tech, yeah. It doesn't stop them learning the skills that they're weak in. It just means that you take away that anxiety that I'm hopeless at everything and tightens up the binoculars to go, ah, you just got the wobbly hand. Isn't it so interesting to think about we when we don't know or when we don't have that binoculars, I love that analogy, that we sort of describe the difficulty as what we see, but it right. almost generalizes um, the condition or the difficulty or puts a blanket statement and also places limitations um, oh. on people. It's not just students, but yeah, every it could be anyone in any context. And it's hard because as speech pathologists and teachers, we like to think that we have the skills to fix things. Mm -hmm. And um, at times it can be quite confronting if you're supporting a student who there is no magic cure for, but you can walk alongside and equip them to stand on their own two feet. And we each play a role in a chain. We may not be the final chain, but we each contribute over time. And just because we don't see the culmination of the end product doesn't mean our contribution isn't valuable. And I love what you said about, you know, thinking um, quite intentionally about is it the end product, that idea of fixing, or is it the processes that we're That's working right. Because sometimes right. language and learning, it tends to develop across the life, life exactly. cycle. Right, exactly. You, from when you're born, you're exactly. you're learning, you're listening to language, you are doing all of these different things until your deathbed. Um, that's right. When, you know, to whatever capacity that's, that's there. That's right. Dynamic. Um, thank and you. We've seen in New South Wales, we have a new syllabus for English and and maths, and um, I know a lot of teachers and speeches are are walking the journey to embrace the new syllabus and but we also know that there are some um, you know spelling skills and language analysis skills and things that we're learning as graduates that is okay for us to learn as graduates we didn't have to master it in order to move out of year three and um you know we've got degrees and we've but we may still be learning about morphemes and and how things work and so sometimes um yeah we need to be able to equip our kids to be the best they can be but also help them realize that it's a journey and we all have different profiles of strengths and weaknesses and you don't have to necessarily get mastery in order to be valuable. We are all valuable um, and we can all support each other and accept our failings and um, journey together.
That's right. Um, Catherine, I'd love to delve into two aspects of your mm. work life and your pivoting one is your involvement into um within writing the new south wales syllabus mm. and the second one is for you mentioned the complex medical histories mm. but sort of unpacking that a little bit more um for anyone that's actually listening to this conversation and it could be myself. I'm learning so much from you that I'm ready to put into practice, but also for anybody else who's not a speech pathologist or not a teacher, but has kids and has, Ooh. yeah. So let's go with oh. your involvement with the syllabus first. Well, um, New South Wales, we had the big change with the Australian curriculum and New South Wales has had a history of um having a state specific variation of the Australian curriculum which all states have the freedom to do and um the premier at the time announced that she wanted um a very strong alignment with current research evidence and within the um development of the syllabus they go out to um teachers and have a teacher writing team and it's a team of about 10, I think it was, with NISA um, and staff and other academics. And um, it's representational of um, people in small schools or people who are out west or um, principals or people that have to get that real cross-section of the state. And thanks to COVID, we were able to work um, remotely. So I didn't have to be in Sydney, which worked really nicely. And um, because of the alignment with research, um, there was also a need to um, include oral language outcomes in our new syllabus. And um, I got dobbed in um, by a few sources to be part of that team and um, had the opportunity to contribute into the K to two and the three to six um, syllabus to support that continuity across K to six. So, um, yeah, it's a really exciting change. And um, it's in essence, it um, takes the research of the National Reading Panel and the Rose Report and um, the Australian um, Literacy Review that were all done 2000 and um, between about 2000 and 2005 mm -hmm. and actually embeds it into the syllabus finally. So that makes life an awful lot easier. And um, yeah, it's it's slowly rolling out into um, into schools. I think three to six is um, in practice implemented this year. But, um, and I know it's a big learning journey for everybody because I know I've been, um, I first put evidence-based practice and decodable readers um, into schools, into a class, into my previous school back in 2011, 2012. So, so um, this is what a new journey to me and I've then supported it through multiple different schools over the years. And so um, if anyone's feeling overwhelmed, it's that it's like paint. We build up a, a painting, a wall, we do multiple coats and over time we, we build up our knowledge and um, 
we support each other. And so um, it's been what's really exciting too is the New South Wales syllabus now has oral narrative um, within the oral language outcomes, which allows us to um, link in those oral language skills that then support into reading comprehension and, and writing skills. So yeah, I was um, yeah very grateful to be able to contribute and um, and have a voice, and that was because of my um, my um, teaching um, qualifications. So mm -hmm. at times I've there are, there's values of being a hybrid because we don't employ speeches in schools um, mm -hmm. in New South Wales like other states, but um, yeah, I think there's also valuable in being able to um, yeah spend time as the classroom teacher and um, just realize take time for yourself to pull different sources of information into together and practically look at your kids and go okay let's journey over 12 months and see where we can get to so yeah it's fantastic um Catherine are people um from other states able to access uh New South Wales yes um, yeah it's the website from memory I think is primary curriculum yeah um I will find the link and I will send it to you, but it is all there. Um, and Spelled New South Wales have been doing a huge amount of work um, and all of their training uh, is aligned with the, the new syllabus and things have been shifting this year to online. They've done a lot of work in that space that are a really good support for schools as well and speeches that then want to connect in and and yeah, there's a wealth of information and you can access the K to 12, the K it's it's all online. Mm -hmm. um, K to K2 was implemented last year in 2023. Three to six is this year and seven to ten I know is done. I cannot remember. I think it's implemented this year. It might be next year. I'd have to double check, but it's essentially the reworking of that um, K to K to 10 space, which is super exciting. That's great because I was actually had a look at the um I was trying to look for good short videos for um, teachers or just for learning about comprehension and the the links between comprehension strategies and the reading rope. Um, and when I was go scrolling through the New South Wales syllabus, it had some really fantastic short clips that made yes. it very clear um in its yeah the similar and then there's extra bits and pieces over on new south wales department of education website as well um they've got a lot of research links for sharing the research behind the changes to the syllabus as well and um a lot of things that can be easily accessed so yeah it's exciting that's great. Now let's um, delve into awareness of complex medical needs for students in our schools. Um, yeah. What so my journey, my journey in that space was as a speech pathologist. Um, after my youngest was born, I ended up. Um, I know. I think I'd said I was with paediatric brain injury team. I was actually part of paediatric rehab team, and it has different arms. So in Newcastle, we have. Um, an outpatient kids rehab team mm -hmm. and um, I was part of the team that looked after the um, cerebral palsy movement disorders clinic and the general paediatric rehab and then up the corridor was ped brain injury and so I ended up with paediatric brain injury when I was piloting a project 
to support kids with mild moderate head injury back into schools because they're the kids that everyone thinks is fine that can, that can have just subtle needs and often fall under the radar and you can often misinterpret a child who had a, a head injury before school it might be mild and even these days it's even your repeat concussion kids um might present in high school with behavior challenges or learning mm. difficulties and it's actually a um, all linked to that brain injury rather than being, you know, they're just being a toad. Um, like, and so being able to look holistically at the child and realizing that things that happen in the early years can be still contributing to difficulties within the school years and the high school years. So yeah, ped rehab, um, it meant that I was working with kids that had a range of different diagnoses and um, some of those guys had chronic conditions. Some of them had um, diagnoses that were um, a, a known disability. Um, others had had disrupted schooling or um, things that had happened. And then when I went into my um, most recent school, um, I had the opportunity to um, implement um, best practice as far as having a T1, solid T1 um, approach and then intervention for T2 and T3 students. And what I found was that when we had across K to 12, a really nice, solid, consistent approach um, and we had supports in for T2, my T3 kids all had complex medical backgrounds mm -hmm. and I went oh I had a student in year um in stage six that had had a really interesting endocrine condition and had a interesting dyslexia um, that was very specifically targeted to some skills but not others I had six kids across the school that had all had a history of um, heart surgery within the first six months of life I had my two who were rare disease kids. I had others that had um, that real family history of um, dyslexia. Um, and then I had other kids. I had a student couple with post-concussion syndrome, one that had had brain injury, uh, um, had come off his mountain bike um, as in about year three and he was now in year 10. And um, yeah, and so because, because I'm me and strange, I look big picture and go, okay, well, what's the big picture going on here and what's the journey been and where are we up to? And um, I learned that sometimes what looks like a learning difficulty actually has an underlying disability or a medical complexity and what starts as a medical complexity um, becomes a disability when the demands of learning become great enough for it to, to be a, a challenge. And, um, yeah, and realising that sometimes... Um, the hospital and the health system might only follow up a child who's had twins that were 26 weekers um, and one had had heart surgery, one that, one that hadn't and the difference. And well, the health system follows your premier kids up for two years until they're two. Um, and most of your, I'd had a number of referrals for kids that had had, you know, you get, Catherine, I've been told to give you a call and, um, my child had a um, occipital load tumor removed prior to starting school, and now they're in year six. But we're having these specific difficulties. Could it be related? And um, yeah, just realizing that sometimes that disrupted early years or disrupted, you know, um, 
we know that chemotherapy and radiation therapy can impact executive skills and that inter executive skills are heavily interlinked with language skills. And um, also now, yeah, as I said before, you repeat concussions. I had a, we were a school that had a mountain biking program and equestrian program regionally, a small school. I uh, had a student that in year 12 that had post-concussion syndrome when he came off his water, was water skiing and mm -hmm. um, quad bikes. And so being able to, as a overseeing learning support, for me, it was really, really important to have a real integrated team that looked at well-being and behavior and learning difficulties and medical because often it gets oh well the medical conditions are just looked after at the office and well-being is something completely different and then behavior well that's just them being naughty and they but the idea that actually it is all interlinked and I don't think I achieved it but my goal is uh, my ideal is to realize that it, it is all interlinked and um how many of our kids whether they are neurodiverse from a developmental perspective or have acquired things. And then I started to scratch the research and um, Dr. Valerie Muter has written a book who has researched extensively with Maggie Snowling and Dr. Charles Hume in um, the UK. And she was clinical neuropsychologist at Great Ormond Street um, in the UK. And I've realized that, oh, look, there are pockets of research and um, this is a thing, but it's not something that we we talk about too much because often for these kids, everyone says, oh, well, they're alive. They're doing really well. But um, when we think about medically, a lot of these kids had more significant side effects back 30 years ago if they did survive. And so the mainstream classroom wasn't somewhere they ended up, whereas nowadays you can have keyhole surgery and you know modern medicine is amazing mm -hmm. and um yeah so I, I think that um with everyone saying oh we've got a big population you know the needs of kids with disabilities well sometimes it's also um medical related and there's a lot of trauma that happens in that space for families um in the early years and walking that journey and and school can be a bit tricky to navigate, but then when you come out the other end, it's keeping your kids um, able to engage within the mainstream curriculum so that when they're well enough, they can go and do all sorts of things. And um, yeah, and as a once they leave school, there's as I said before, I've had the opportunity of following those 13 years with a number of kids. And um, it's such a blessing to encourage people at that point of problem or diagnosis in the early years that this is not um, where you are fixed it's it's going to change and evolve and develop over time and don't think that this child is or person is going to be stuck because yeah we just have to sometimes see things differently and take that adult mindset of well what are your strengths how do we use that to support your weaknesses and let's just do what we can and see where we get to um, Catherine, I love that you sort of um, talked about the integration of well-being, behaviour, learning, medical, which almost seem like such um, island points. Um, mm -hmm. They're not talking to each other, but we know better and we know research right. constantly talked about how learning impacts behaviour and vice versa. Right. 
how learning impacts mental health and we have very clear um, stats on it, there is absolutely more research um, to be done in those areas. But yeah. it's a good, really good segue into big picture. Mm. First of all, what do you mean by big picture and working with the students and your experience what have you seen like feel free to use any examples just mm, that mm. picture well, one of the things is I've worked with a number of students who have been gifted and then um, throughout their schooling years have had something happen and so it might be cancer it might be um as I said, a post-concussion syndrome or a, a mild head injury or something that's disrupted their, their journey. And what I have discovered is that everyone will do assessments and say, oh, you're in average range, you'll be fine. But for some of our kids with mild, what people on paper say, oh, no, you're in normal range, that's fine. Actually, they were gifted. But prior to their injury or prior to what happened, um, they were functioning in at the 97th percentile and now their scores are at the 50th percentile. Mm -hmm. And so often those kids are most um, receptive and respond exceptionally well to interventions and supports because they have a real awareness of what they've lost. Mm -hmm. And so they know when they come back to school that, hang on, I was in the top science class and now I'm not. And all of my friends that I used to come ducks with now I'm not. And what does what's happened in trying to process that? And so from a big picture, looking at a student and their support needs needs to not just say, oh, no, we only provide support to the, the bottom five kids in a grade, but actually look at the needs of students and go, actually, um, and it doesn't mean that you need to pull them out and treat them differently. It just means that they might need a mentor to check in with or they might just need some planning and organisation support. So they might just, yeah, that's, and so just um, severity of difficulty doesn't necessarily negate the need for support and, but it needs to be how you was, if that was you, how would you like to be supported and um, maintaining student autonomy and um, respect and, Students know, I remember I arrived at a school many years ago and it was a school that had previously provided a huge amount of supports to students. And in the old days of our school certificate, if Board of Studies didn't approve it, you weren't allowed to give it. And um, I remember seeing a group of kids, um, year 10, and I said to them, are you studying for your exams? And they said, no, miss, no, we're not doing that. Why not? And they went, oh, we've got reader-writer support. They do it for us. It's not our work. We don't have to worry. And I went, hmm. Anyway, so I have a big preference that I would rather give kids extra time rather than reader-writer support unless they have a really significant, uh, it's that individual individualization. And so we transitioned them to extra time because I didn't think these kids were going to end up getting their Reader, writer, their reader support approved. Um, and so we trialed an exam with extra time. And next exam period, they're all up in the library in my homework support um, studying. And I went, what are you doing? And I said, I thought you didn't study for exams. They went, no, no, it's our work. So we need to, because that means that what we do in the exam is, is a reflection of me. And so I realized that we actually 
over supporting a student cannot necessarily have positive, the positive outcomes that we think. We need to capacity build our students and walk alongside and equip them and support them and give them a voice to be able to allow them to take ownership of their learning so that when we're no, we don't want them Velcroed to our side for the next 20 years. We want our kids to be able to go and do their thing and then invest those same um skills into the next generation and equip and realize that um yeah if you've I had a student once who struggled enormously with um reading fluency but his comprehension was fine and so long as he could um read the text he could write full sentence answers it was just we had difficulties in that oral reading um pathway and so as soon as we flipped it he, by the time he was 16, his oral reading and spelling handwriting skills were still at a 8 to 10-year-old level, but his reading comprehension um, skills were three years above and he was at a 19-year-old level. And I remember the neuropsych saying, my goodness, Catherine, what have you been doing? And it's like, well, we just targeted what he could do to support. And with technology, he's been an NRL rugby league ref and works in the mind you know does fabulous things but we only ever look at kindergarten and oh it's a problem and it's a crisis we don't actually go actually let's just pick our battles and start small and realize that we can make difference over time and the child graduating year 12 is a very different person to the person that started kindergarten 13 years earlier that's so incredible Catherine and I really appreciate you saying that we need to be working alongside them through the years the big picture being employment relationships they exactly of life yeah, um that's right language and learning and well-being behavior all of that is our scaffolds but to access life um exactly as it should be but also the other thing that i'd like to add to what you said is we need the knowledge as adults we need the knowledge to know what to do or where to seek guidance or where specifically as opposed to they'll be okay or they can't do it or um, let's do trial and error trial and error is fine but for how long um, that's right is that going to yeah exactly. and being able to embrace technology and not seeing like I look in my youngest because of his sister I remember used to bring me my phone and say um um I want to watch that where did you find that oh I've just found that because my kids um their technology is their lifeline because their hands don't work or other thing we've got disability they have never ever abused that privilege and I check in and we they know and so not being afraid of being able to um, use tools for specific purposes to support student autonomy and student independence because to be able to be independent provides a lot of social emotional well-being and feelings of pride and autonomy and um, we don't want to be supporting in a way that just creates learned helplessness and dependence because um, yeah our kids are able to do so much much uh, do so much more than that absolutely thank you so much Catherine um for taking the Lovely. time uh, yeah. to 
share this um, part of your life, to share this chapter, I will be putting in links of where people can find yeah. you um, and where you share a lot of the things that you do, but other people are doing as well. Um, before we do end this uh, conversation, is there anything that I haven't asked you or something you've been wanting to share that we haven't um, delved into? No, I don't think so. I think that's just that reminder that we don't have to, life is not about skill mastery and we can use our strengths to support our weaknesses and to be able to realise that we're equipping our kids to live their life and um, be the best that they can be and that a student's performance, if they have a disability, is not a reflection of our class teach of, of it's it's not about me it's about equipping the kids to be the best that they can be and when they don't need me anymore I celebrate yeah and when in my school teams my approach in learning support um, type spaces is that our focus is to do ourselves out of a job we will always have people we need to support, but we are not to make our kids dependent. We are to celebrate when they tell you, I'll do it myself, thank you very much. And we go, yay, I'll just step back. And so our our role is not to be um, yeah, so important that the kids are dependent on us, but to disappear and fade into the background and be the cheer squad from the, bleach, from the, the grandstand. Thank you so much, um, Catherine. That is absolutely wonderful sort of um, conclusion to our chapter but yeah independence um, you know it mm. reminds me of um, Anita Dr Anita Archer's words practice makes permanent but success breeds success um, right. and exactly. yes there'll be failures and mistakes and all of that but they're learning opportunities That's right um, yeah exactly exactly Thank you. So for everyone that's going to be listening to um, this conversation, it's going to be available on Human Chapters YouTube channel, Human Chapters podcast and Human Chapters page on Facebook. Please feel free to share it with anyone that may resonate. Um, it's not exclusive to speech pathology or education, but really we're all in the work of education. Everybody, you've either gone to school, you you know, employment, everybody is connected to it somehow. So thank you very much. Thanks so much.